Hi, and welcome to another podcast from VJ Oncology. Today, we're going to be joined by Sarah Delaney, Hope Rugo, Justin Balco, and Michael Nant as they discuss the latest advances in the management of early stage breast cancer. First up, Sarah Delaney from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute discusses important considerations in the management of hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative early breast cancer. So we've seen a movement uh, towards changing our standards for early hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer, where originally our predominant therapies had been systemic chemotherapy as well as endocrine therapy. And while those still may remain staples uh, in our armamentarium of treatments, we now have some new agents. And one, we have approval of a bemacyclib. Uh, so this is an oral CDK4-6 inhibitor that when given for two years with endocrine therapy does result in a significant improvement in invasive disease-free survival with about a third risk reduction uh, for uh, DFS events. So I think it really is a new standard for our high-risk hormone receptor positive HER2 negative patients. Uh, I think there are lots of questions that still remain surrounding this. Um, should they really just be restricted to high-risk patients? Are there patients, for example, with intermediate risk disease who could benefit? Could this potentially replace chemotherapy in some patients? So I think still a lot of questions that we could help address, um, even what's the proper duration. You know, two years was sort of randomly chosen as the duration in monarchy, but should it be longer? Could it have been shorter? I think there are all these questions that we still don't have answers to, but nice to have a new agent that is improving outcomes. Uh, we're awaiting data from Natalie, which will look at three years of ribocyclob. Um, so we'll see if there will be another CDK4-6 inhibitor that will also have benefit. But I think now we're also thinking about could other agents have benefit in this population? Could, for example, novel endocrine agents have a space here like oral SIRDs? Uh, and so there are multiple trials that are now ongoing and, and also planned to move into this space, both in the immediate adjuvant setting as well as in the late adjuvant setting. So I do think, you know, it's been a couple of decades since we've seen approvals for new agents in the early stage setting and abemacyclob sort of broke that barrier and hopefully we will continue to see more agents move into this space. Next up, we had the opportunity to discuss the role of CDK4-6 inhibitors in early breast cancer with Michael Nyant from the University of Vienna. Very clearly, the, um, that there were not too many pivotal results in the field of breast cancer. There were a lot of interesting contributions. I think most awaited were the results of the Natalie trial. That's an adjuvant trial of the addition of ribocyclib uh, to standard endocrine treatment. Uh, and uh, because we have results from large trials from the two other available uh, uh, CDK4-6 inhibitors, uh, actually controversial results because the Penelope B and the PALAS trial did not demonstrate the benefit for the addition of palpocyclib, whereas Monarch E demonstrated that the addition of abemacyclib will yield uh, uh, sustainable benefits for patients or also over time. And the third uh, CDK4-6 inhibitor ribocyclib was tested in this Natalie trial and in these very early results uh, we saw very promising signals, um, and that's important also because Natalie included not only patients at highest risks, but also somewhat uh, limited, I would call that intermediate risk. So potentially, if these results are confirmed with longer follow-up, that could extend the target population of that benefit to 
let's say maybe 30 to 35 percent of all breast cancer patients which uh, is great news in terms of uh, who can benefit on the other hand it also raises questions because for example when you have a like a 25 percent relative benefit this will translate into different magnitudes of absolute benefits uh, depending on where you are on the risk scale um, so in in the high risk population for example monarchy demonstrated the six percent absolute benefit which is something that uh, most of us will consider worthwhile and and uh, important to go for uh, patients uh, with that uh, composition of risk factors. In the node negative uh, population, the same uh, relative benefit might translate into, let's say, 2% of absolute benefit. And then obviously, there is a number of patients that are raised, and that's what's currently being discussed in the scientific community, particularly with these very early results. If this is ending up at 2%, uh, it's a three-year treatment. It's, uh, there are side effects associated with it. Uh, there's obviously uh, a huge cost uh, uh, associated with is this 2% um, then uh, worthwhile? To, to to go for um, both from a tolerability but also from a health economic aspect. Um, too early to tell. Eventually, we'll have to see whether these very early results will be confirmed by future updates. I'm pretty sure that the Natalie trial will be updated at every major uh, breast cancer meeting in, in the next couple of years. But overall, very good news. In in addition to that, I think we saw a lot of interesting research, nothing as pivotal, uh, but there was very interesting information on the impact of ovarian function suppression, for example, particularly important in the US where this treatment is still, I would say, undervalued in, in general. But uh, to name another example, for example, in the Fergain study, it was shown that there is a proportion of patients that can be treated very well with uh, antibody alone without underlying chemotherapy. So it is all around this escalation, find new treatments, new innovation, new benefits for patients who are at uh, higher risk, but also de-escalation, maybe not needing all the treatments we have uh, for patients uh, that might be well off even without those treatments and thus sparing them the patients the side effects and society the cost of these treatments and so in that respect uh, with many interesting contributions i think that's also going to to to, to be the the general subject of our time uh, these days when we have uh, really come to a very successful overall treatment results, but still struggling with uh, specifically identifying who is needing which treatment and who is in need of additional treatment and for whom some of the, uh, the current treatments we have may be left out. Next, we hear from Hope Rugo of Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Centre, who discusses challenges in the management of early-stage HER2-positive breast cancer, including defining heterogeneity, optimal neoadjuvant and adjuvant approaches, as well as how to incorporate novel therapies into the treatment landscape. 
Well, this is, of course, the uh, early breast cancer consensus guidelines. So we're focusing on uh, the challenges in treating early stage HER2 positive disease. Uh, there's a really interesting talk on heterogeneity. I think one of the um, interesting aspects of HER2 is that most of the tumors are fairly homogeneous, but there is a subset of tumors that are quite heterogeneous where some of the tumor cells are HER2 positive and HER2 negative and trying to understand how to manage that. There's also an interesting talk talking about that heterogeneity in hormone receptor positive versus hormone receptor negative disease, which I think will be quite interesting um, and also brings up the controversy of whether or not we should be differentiating therapy based on these biologic findings and how we should really define heterogeneity. Um, and then there are two talks that are um, evaluating the optimal neoadjuvant and adjuvant therapy approaches. We generally prefer neoadjuvant therapy for all but the smallest tumors that are HER2 positive. It is helpful sometimes for the very small tumors to understand the node status and not to over-treat. So in those smaller tumors, surgery first is preferable. But otherwise, understanding the response in HER2 positive disease has allowed us to modify the post-neoadjuvant therapy and improve outcomes. Uh, and then, of course, the next step is how are we incorporating newer therapies into the treatment of HER2-positive disease? Uh, and we have new antibody drug conjugate, trastuzumab druxtecan, that has shown remarkable efficacy in the second-line setting against TDM1. So, of course, the natural question is in patients who don't achieve a PCR, could treatment with TDXD improve outcome more than TDM1 or trastuzumab amtansine? in the uh, post-neoadjuvant setting. So it's really looking at these two, you know, first generation versus later generation um, ADCs. I think that generally the expectation is because of the remarkable difference in outcome in uh, Destiny Breast uh, O3 that looked at uh, trastuzumab amtansine versus trastuzumab druxtecan as second line therapy for metastatic HER2 positive disease um, that TDXD will likely be superior. But then you carry it on to the next step. Could you just give an antibody drug conjugate in the neoadjuvant setting? Then you wouldn't need to give all that chemotherapy. We've already shown in a number of very nicely done large randomized trials that non-anthracycline-based regimens seem to have a similar outcome to anthracycline-based regimens. We're not really sure who needs anthracyclines. Maybe the heterogeneity question will help us look at that as well. Um, but there are neoadjuvant study ongoing. There is a neoadjuvant setting ongoing that's looking at trastuzumab druxtecan in various combinations and sequences. And there are a lot of novel antibody drug conjugates and oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors uh, that are also being studied in HER2-positive disease. The uh, now sort of current approved uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor of choice is tucatinib in the metastatic setting because it has a better toxicity profile, uh, although neratinib uh, is approved for the treatment of patients who have very high-risk disease um, after a year of trastuzumab. But it wasn't studied after an antibody drug conjugate, so we don't really understand how to use it. And now there's an ongoing study looking at tucatinib uh, in combination with trastuzumab amtansine to see if that further improves outcome in patients with residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy. So the overall sort of approach in HER2-positive diseases, you know, you give the therapy upfront that's a little bit less in patients who respond very rapidly, great. In patients who don't have as good a response, you can gradually add things on 
some studies are looking at this in the neoadjuvant setting, most in the post-neoadjuvant setting with residual disease. And then in patients who have hormone receptor positive, luminal, more luminal B-like disease, should you be using different endocrine therapy approaches? Are CDK4-6 inhibitors appropriate in that setting? So there's a lot of questions. It's a really interesting era. We're really learning from what we're doing in the metastatic setting. Finally, we hear from Justin Balco from Vanderbilt University Medical Center, who discusses biomarkers in early stage breast cancer, touching on Neopact, FinHer, and Fergain trials. So uh, yesterday we presented a discussion of three oral abstracts um, that were part of the uh, biomarkers in the early stage setting in breast cancer. Um, there were three abstracts and they related to an exploratory analysis of the NEOPAC trial, which was done out of University of Kansas Medical Center, or Kansas University Medical Center rather, that looked at uh, a shortened chemotherapy in uh, early stage triple negative breast cancer with the addition of pembrolizumab. So it was carboplatin and taxol for six cycles uh, with pembrolizumab. So this is a uh, significantly shortened regimen versus the Keynote 522, which is now in standard of care clinical practice. This is an exploratory analysis of RNA sequencing uh, gene expression signatures um, in patients looking for potential biomarkers of response to chemoimmunotherapy benefit. The second abstract was uh, a meta-analysis of the prognostic and potentially predictive value of TILs in the early stage HER2 setting. So the idea was that the FinHER study had shown that there was a predictive benefit of trastuzumab benefit, of, uh, there was a predictive uh, utility of of, uh, of TILs in uh, patients that had received trastuzumab. Um, what this study actually found was it was unable to confirm the FinHER results and instead found that high TILs were uh, generally prognostic in HER2-positive patients, but they retained trastuzumab benefit regardless of their TILs level. Um, so it was a very confirmatory but very uh, definitive study. The final abstract was the Fergain trial. So this was updates from the Fergain trial, which looked at the use of the imaging biomarker PET early on in therapy to help uh, reduce the amount of chemotherapy that patients receive within this setting. So the really interesting finding from this abstract was that uh, about 30% of patients could, in the early stage uh, HER2 positive setting, could be spared from chemotherapy by looking at an early PET scan to determine whether or not they had a response, and then furthermore looking at whether they had a uh, pathological complete response or residual disease. If they had residual disease, they would go on to the chemotherapy. If they had a pathological complete response, they never received chemotherapy. And actually, these patients had a really, really outstanding outcome. Um, there was only one event in the entire group, uh, and it was a local recurrence. So there are some questions still around that because it was a phase two non-comparative trial, um, but potentially practice-changing um, uh, ideologies and, and, and results. Thanks for listening to our latest podcast on advances in early breast cancer. If you've enjoyed this podcast, make sure to head on over to vjooncology.com for more info. Thank you.